This morning's scripture reading for the sermon is found from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Is God's word. You may be seated. Well, last week we began our preaching series that will eventually take us, Lord willing, all the way through the gospel according to Matthew. We begin this series with what will become a six week study of the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew gives us in the beginning, in the first 17 verses, as he began with Abraham. Of course, that is as far as we got last week. Abraham. One name among this long list of names. Obviously, if we are planning to make our way through the entire genealogy in six weeks, we won't be devoting that kind of detailed attention to each name on the list. Abraham, the story of Ruth and Boaz and David, will each be afforded a sermon to themselves. Their stories carry significant meaning in regard to the life and the ministry of the Messiah and are worth devoting extra time to. However, for the rest of the genealogy, we will be looking at larger sections of history, or as today, focusing on four names that you might not expect to be included in the genealogy of God's Messiah. Well, join me in prayer one more time as we approach the Word of God. Father, every time we approach Your Word, we do so in humility, pleading with Your Spirit to make it effectual in our lives. Give us the grace of understanding, and by understanding, grant us greater love for You and greater faith in the works of your Son. Help us to hear well, to take things in well. Protect my words from careless thoughts that might be interjected. Protect me from anything that is not true according to your word. Protect me from speaking that out. And protect this congregation from hearing anything in a way that is not helpful, glorifying to Christ and honoring to you. All these things we trust and we put in your hands for the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A brief history lesson might be helpful to cover some of the gaps in, in time as we move forward with the genealogy. So we're going to cover the time from Abraham to the story of Ruth and Boaz that Siler will be preaching about next week. 
Well, Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac being that child of promise that God told Abraham that he would have. Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And though Esau was the oldest, before they were born, it was said that the older should serve the younger. As Paul wrote in Romans 9, 10-13, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, just as a side note, this should remind us a little bit of part of Abraham's story as well. If you recall, Abraham had more than one son, and Isaac was not the firstborn. Even so, it is through Isaac's line that God determined to bring about the salvation of men. Well, back to our brief history lesson. Jacob, destined to be served by his older brother, stole the birthright and the blessing that was Esau's by rights. And he later, after fleeing the area for fear of Esau, spent 14 years working to be able to marry both Leah and Rachel. After this time, Jacob was on the wrong side of a trick played against him and received the wrong bride the first seven years. Jacob was given 12 sons, from which we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's name having been changed to Israel after contesting with the angel of the Lord. But one of the sons of Israel, Joseph, was his father's favorite. This incited his brothers to great jealousy, and they faked his death and sold him into slavery. After rising to prominence in the house of Potiphar, Joseph was falsely accused, and he found himself once again imprisoned and dejected. Even so, God raised up Joseph into prominence, so great into prominence that he arose to be the second in command over all of Egypt. God used Joseph to provide for the salvation of his family, ultimately for the preservation of the line of the Messiah, the salvation of God for mankind. And at that time, the children of Israel settled in the land of Goshen in Egypt. Well, many years later, a Pharaoh came into power who no longer remembered what the sons of Israel had done for his nation, no longer appreciated how God had rescued Egypt as a nation because of his people Israel. He began to treat them poorly, and the descendants of Israel became enslaved and heavily burdened in the land. In God's good timing, the cries for deliverance from Israel were heard. God, through a very unlikely act of providence, used a wicked and horrifying edict to slaughter innocents in order to elevate a would-be slave into a position of power in the house of Pharaoh, namely Moses. The very man who God would use out of Jacob's line to lead his people out, to free them from the bondage of slavery. The descendants of Israel walked out of Egypt with the plunder of the nation. As they left, Egyptians threw at them gold and gifts and precious things, saying, get out of here. They chased them out because of the horror of the plagues that God had visited upon them. Even so, 
after that divine display of power and redemption out of slavery in Egypt, the people did not trust the Word of God. As they reached the promised land that had been promised to their fathers so long before, they doubted. When they saw what they would be confronted with, these these giants in the land, they doubted the Word of God. And then God sent them into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. Eventually, after Moses died in the wilderness for his lack of faith, the people entered into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb alone were found faithful in that generation and allowed to enter in. Under the leadership of Joshua, the descendants of Israel entered the promised land and began conquering the peoples there, whose time of iniquity was then finally at an end. After the time of Joshua, Israel would fall into a pattern of turning over to idolatry, turning away from the one true God and the commandments that had been handed down to them, turning to the false gods of the nations. They found themselves again and again under the oppression and control of these pagan nations around them. And God raised up a series of judges to rescue them from that oppression and then to rule over them. Eventually, After this pattern played out over and over, God gave them the king that they demanded. And then He later on graciously gave them the king that He had chosen. Well, that, in a very large nutshell, brings us from Abraham all the way up to David. As Siler has already read for us from Matthew 1, 2-6. You go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, to Judah, to Perez and Zerah by Tamar, to Hezron, to Ram, to Aminadab, to Nashon, to Solomon, Boaz by Rahab, Obed by Ruth, Jesse, David the king, and even beyond there, Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, if you look at that list, there are a few names that are really going to stick out. And we're going to pay special attention to those names this morning, to those people this morning and their stories. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, who we know to be Bathsheba. These aren't names you would typically expect to see in a genealogy like this. The fact that they are present indicates that the author, Matthew, has a very specific purpose in mind. There is something he is meaning to communicate by including these women in this genealogy. He is bringing their stories to the front of the reader's mind and imagination. So, what is strange about their inclusion? If I'm going to make that assertion, I ought to have an answer for that question. Well, first off, they are women. This kind of genealogy typically follows the succession from father to son throughout the generations. If you look at Luke's genealogy for Jesus that he gives in Luke chapter 3, he sets it up like that. Father to son, to son, to son, and so on. The inclusion of women in a genealogy in that time, in that culture, wasn't completely unprecedented. It just meant that there was a specific reason for their inclusion. And in this case, I think that Matthew had a few reasons for including them. 
And we're going to look at those in just a little bit. Well, the second reason it might seem strange that these women are included is that none of them are Jewish. In a genealogy of the Jewish Messiah, you would expect to find proper Jewish men, and if women, proper Jewish women throughout the lineage. Yet in the line of Christ, Christ who is the purpose of the nation of Israel, you find four women who are foreigners. A third reason it might seem odd that Matthew included these women is that each of their stories carries an element of scandal about them. Tamar tricked her father-in-law into getting her pregnant. Rahab had been a prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite. The wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, was a married woman, woman seduced into adultery by the king and who later married the king after he had had her husband killed. Of course, we don't want to overplay the scandal angle here, because even though this would be a major issue for Christians later on, maybe a concern for Christians as we look back now, in the first century the Jews saw these women as heroines. Even so, the circumstances surrounding their lives and the roles in the history of the nation of Israel certainly do portray a very peculiar providence of God in bringing about the salvation of men. Consider with me for a moment, a little bit more in depth, the story of Tamar. We can read about her story in Genesis 38. The story takes place sometime probably about when Joseph was serving in the house of Potiphar. To quickly summarize, she was a Canaanite woman whom Judah, the oldest of Israel's sons, provided for his firstborn son, Ur. But Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God killed him. Judah told his second son, Onan, to, according to Levitical law, rise up and take his brother's widow in as a wife to provide offspring for his brother's name. But Onan refused to fulfill his duty. So the Lord killed him as well. Judah's third son, Shelah, was too young to marry. So Judah told Tamar to return to her father's house and that he would send for her when Shelah was old enough and ready to take a bride. Of course, Judah did not fill his oath to Tamar. When the boy came of age, so she disguised herself as a prostitute and tricked Judah into impregnating her, determined to have an heir for the name of her dead husband. When Judah found out that she was pregnant, he was furious. That is, until he heard the rest of the story and realized that he was the one. After Judah heard the whole story, he proclaimed that she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Well, Tamor bore Judah twins, and her son Perez is in the line of Christ. So to recap, Tamar was not an Israelite. She played the part of the prostitute. She tricked her father-in-law into committing an incestuous act. Yet, in so doing, God provided for her security, and she entered into the line of the Messiah. Now let's look at a little bit more at the story of Rahab. You can find her story beginning in Joshua 2. 
Rahab became a key figure in the first major victory for Israel as Joshua led them into the promised land to begin their conquering after they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua sent men ahead to go into Jericho to spy out the land, to get as much information as possible that might help Israel take the city. While in the city, these men went into the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Well, why would they go into the house of a prostitute, you might ask? Well, there are at least two, two reasons that don't require us to assume gross moral failure. One reason is that as places of lodging go, the house of a prostitute is a wise choice for anyone who wishes to maintain a certain amount of anonymity. Another reason is that a house of a prostitute is a pretty good place to look if you desire to procure information in secret. That being said, while they were there, it was found out who they were and what they were doing in Jericho. There had to have been at least two people that found out what their purpose was. One person went and told the king, and another, Rahab, took and hid the men, providing them a safe means of escape from the city. Well, if we look at those two responses to discovering what those men were doing there, it's easy to understand why the one would report them. Their livelihood probably depended on that city, not to mention the reward that they might have expected for foiling an enemy's plans. The real question is, why did Rahab help them? Well, we read her response in Joshua 2, 9-14. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us all, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, He is God in the heavens above the earth, and the heavens above and the earth beneath. Now then, Swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of yours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and deal faithfully with you. Well, Rahab helped the men escape. And the promise that the men made to Rahab was kept. She and her father's household were all that remained alive of the city of Jericho. Sometime later, Rahab married Solomon, and she became part of the line of Christ. Rahab is even mentioned along with some heroes of the faith from the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 31. We read there, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The author of Hebrews recalls her actions as an act of faith as she responded to the reputation of God and to all the wonders that God had performed in the land as they came before them. So, Rahab was a prostitute 
who out of fear for the one true God lied to protect the spies of Israel, and by doing so, she preserved her father's household and found her way into the line of the Messiah. We're not going to go into as much detail on the other two women on the list, Ruth and the wife of Uriah, that is Bathsheba. The first one from a people born out of the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The second, whether intentional or not, drove the idealized king of Israel, that is David, so mad with lust that he would kill to cover up his sin. We don't have time to get into it, but the actions of David would cause fractures throughout his family and throughout his descendants that would tear the kingdom apart and ultimately lead Judah and Israel into ruin. Let's get back to the issue at hand. Why did Matthew include these women in his genealogy of Christ? Well, to be certain, he included them because they really were in the line of Christ. He didn't make something up to be able to tell a story. These are true figures in the history of Israel that really are in the line of Christ. But of course, why did he mention them and not the other well-known women throughout the age? Women like Sarah or Rebecca, who were very well-known. Well, there are a few possible reasons that Matthew might have had in mind as he was led to include these women. And they all likely would have carried the natural responses to the reader. Well, the first reason I believe Matthew included these women is that their being Gentiles goes really well with the reference to Abraham that we talked about last week. Men through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed in the Messiah. The inclusions of the Gentiles would prepare the reader for the inclusion of the Gentiles through Christ into spiritual Israel. Remember that Jesus came through these women who were from the nations and Christ would be a blessing for the nations. The second reason, that because there is a connection between all these women and some sort of sexual sin. Some sort of noticeable great sin. Tamar with her father-in-law. Rahab is a prostitute. Ruth, though innocent of herself, came from a people that were born of incest. And Bathsheba in her adultery with David. So with that in mind, think of the picture that Christ came to save people from their sins. And this would be apparent even in those lives who made up his lineage, his family tree. Well, the third reason to remind the readers of the stories of these women is to show how God had worked in the past in unexpected acts of providence in the line of the Messiah. This would serve to prepare the reader for the unexpected yet providential conception of Jesus in the Virgin Mary. Matthew understood that people he was writing to, he understood them, he could anticipate their natural responses to the inclusion of these women and that what their stories would bring to mind. Remember last week we looked at according to the promises made to Abraham, the Gentiles were always part of God's redemptive plan. They weren't plan B, they weren't an option added later on because something else had failed, All the nations of the earth were always in the mind of God of who would be part of the bride of His Son and sing praises to the name of Christ 
for eternity. With the inclusion of these women in the genealogy, we can see that not only was there an expectation that one day Israel would be a blessing to the nations, but that the Gentiles would also be included in the means of that blessing. They were part of the line of fulfillment, bringing about that blessing, Jesus the Messiah. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites, Ruth a Moabite, Bathsheba the wife of a Hittite, and so a Hittite herself. The fact that Jesus was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, was a major stumbling block for the Jews in the first century. Matthew's inclusion of these Gentiles in the lines of, line of Christ would remind his readers that the line of kings in Israel, their lineage always included Gentiles. This reminder would help make this inclusion of the Gentiles through faith in Christ more palatable. It would serve to make the reader more ready to hear and upon hearing to be able to accept to see that this is what has been natural in the movement of God. This is not an aberration. This is part of what God has always been about, always been doing. Even the nations to which these women belonged was significant. The Canaanites were a people found under a curse from Noah in Genesis 9. If you remember the context there, Ham, Noah's youngest son, had seen the nakedness of his father and had not acted to cover the nakedness and show him honor that was due to him. And so Noah cursed his descendants. The Moabites were cursed to the tenth generation and banned from the assembly of the Lord in Deuteronomy 23 because of their refusal to help Israel as they came out of Egypt. Remember, it was the Moabites that instead of helping Israel as they came out of Egypt, hired Balaam to curse Israel. All that besides the dubious beginnings of the people of Moab. So these women were not simply foreigners. They were from nations with a significant negative history with Israel. From nations that were under a curse. Of course, that these women were under a curse would be used by God to bring about the Messiah. That ought to cause us to reflect because Jesus Himself would free us from the curse of death that was brought upon all mankind due to our failure to uphold the commands of God. As Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Not only were Ruth or Tamar and Rahab from a people that were enemies of Israel, nations under a curse, but both of their stories and the story of Uriah, the wife of Uriah and much less directly Ruth, their stories included elements of obvious sin. As we had talked about, Tamar presented herself as a prostitute, tricking her father-in-law to impregnate her, knowingly entering into an incestuous relationship, was strictly taboo. Even at that time period, this was not something that was just okay for that time and place. Rahab actually was a prostitute. 
She made a living by giving herself to men who were not her husband. And as we mentioned before, Bathsheba committed adultery with the king, and Ruth was from a nation born out of incest. These are not women who were granted a place in the line of Christ on account of their merits or on account of their righteousness before God. Christ tells us in Mark 2.17 that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, His purpose in coming to earth was that He might save that which was lost. He came to call sinners to Himself. Jesus claimed to claim for Himself the bride that was given to Him by the Father and then to present this bride as spotless and blameless. We may be tempted sometimes to think of ourselves as less sick than someone else. Less spiritually ill. Surely, we're not as spiritually sick as Rahab the prostitute. The sin of Rahab was playing the whore with her body. Yet how often have we played the whore with our heart and given our soul to another? So often we forget the gravity of our sickness. We forget how great our need of a Savior is. We recoil at the mention of adultery and prostitution when it's somebody else's actions. Yet we fail, we fall time and again into that same sin in our relationship with God. We need to be aware of that, our eyes open to the seriousness of turning to anything other than God, of placing our trust, our hope, our future in anything other than God, to make an idol out of anything is spiritual idolatry every bit as much of a betrayal as the husband committing adultery against his wife. All praise be to God that He sent His one and only Son on earth to heal the sick because you and I were sick. To make out of us the diseased and the infirm a spotless and beautiful bride. The last reason I believe Matthew mentioned these women and reminds us of their stories is to prepare us for the unique and the unexpected way in which he would bring about the birth of his son. And that God would bring about the birth of his son in Christ. The virgin birth of Jesus would be a scandal in the first century and it remains a scandal to this day. Early on, even, there were those that claimed that the story of the virgin birth was manufactured in order to protect the image of the mother of Christ. Some believed that she had become pregnant out of wedlock or had been raped by a Roman guard. And in that situation, they manufactured this story because they didn't want it to tarnish the ministry and the the effectiveness of Christ, of Jesus. Today, People just try and claim that the story of the virgin birth is just another in a long line of religious myths of ancient religion. They don't see it any different than the stories of Zeus taking the form of an animal and having children with human women. So I believe Matthew includes these stories to remind us that God has used means in the past that seemed odd. 
Yet, they would prove by their various curious nature that God was at work and His purposes would come to pass. As Paul would confess upon considering the plans of God in salvation in Romans 11, 33-36, where he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. We see in the life of Christ great compassion and tenderness towards those who are aware of their sin and their shame. Of course, Jesus never shied away from calling out sin. His was and is a perfect and exacting standard. The demands of obedience to Him pierce to the very thoughts and intentions of man. However, in Christ is forgiveness. In Christ is cleansing. In Christ is restoration for all who understand their sin and their need. To all who repent of their sin and turn to Christ in faith. To those who think themselves righteous, Jesus exposed their hypocrisy and their foolishness. Anyone who might seek to boast in their own merits, He cut down and He revealed their inadequacy. To those who lifted up their religion and their devotion to a strict set of commands and as a means of earning God's favor, Jesus simply leaned in and showed them how much they still lacked. There was no room for man-made righteousness with Christ. But we see in the lives of these women a willingness to do what they believed was right, to respond in faith, that they would be taken care of. Can we imagine what Jesus' response would have been to them? Do you remember the kind of people that Christ was known to spend His time with? We see in the life of Christ an unending willingness to care for and to love those who truly look to Him for help. Those who saw Him as the great physician of their souls. To the prostitute who turned to Him in faith, He was kindness and forgiveness. To the legally proud, to the spiritually proud, He was rebuke and judgment. The life that Christ lived on this earth was not what was expected by the nation of Israel. They could not accept either His humble beginnings, His ministry and His sacrifice, or His perfect and holy standard. Beloved, we need to learn to respond to people the way that Jesus did. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we need to seek out the most notorious sinners that we can possibly find and hang out with them. That isn't what Jesus did. 
He did, however, show compassion to anyone, regardless of the extent of their sin, who would come to him in humility, looking for forgiveness. Far too often we treat people based on how respectable and put together they appear, not by their attitude toward the gospel. We are all too eager to make provision for those from whom we think we might get benefit. We didn't fix the problem addressed even in James of showing favoritism towards those who look wealthy, to those who look like they might be popular, who look like they might have something to gain from. Jesus responded to people according to the attitudes of their hearts. So, beloved, consider making judgments about how we treat people and with whom we will give our time and attention to, not based on how easy it is, nor on what we can get from them, nor by how respectable they appear, but instead based on how they respond to the gospel. You see, the way that someone responds to their sin and their need for salvation in Christ is a much better indicator of their worthiness of our time and efforts than is the person's wealth or respectability within our society. So consider prioritizing your efforts in your ministry and your life the way that Jesus did, not the way the Pharisees did. Well, I want to end this sermon with one closing thought. Matthew prepared his audience for the unexpected nature of the Messiah. Yet I wonder how prepared we are to accept him as he truly is. For Matthew's audience, it would have been difficult to accept a Savior who had Gentile blood in his lineage, or whose ancestors included prostitutes. A Savior from whom the legitimacy of His birth might be called into question. And certainly it would be difficult for them to accept a Savior who didn't rise up immediately on this earth to cast off Roman oppression and aggression. No doubt, the stumbling blocks in accepting Jesus as He is are different for each of us. Maybe you struggle with the exclusive nature of the call of the gospel. That there is salvation in no other name. That there is no other means other than faith in Christ that we can be made right with God. That there is one way, one plan, one people of God. That there is one way that God has determined that He ought to be approached. One way of of true worship of God that He accepts. Maybe it is difficult for you to accept a salvation that doesn't, at least in some small way, depend on you and how hard you work, how smart you are, how much you have figured things out, how much you try more than other people. Perhaps the difficulty lies with accepting the radical call to forsake all else and to follow Christ in obedience. Maybe you see the God described in the Bible and you don't like so much what you see. So you explain away whatever doesn't fit within your mental image of what God should be.
do you leave out what we know about God based on His interactions from the Old Testament? Do you divide God between an Old Testament God and a New Testament God? Do you reject that God could be sovereign over everything in creation and history and allow the kind of suffering we see around us? And instead of accepting that this must be towards the sovereign will and plan of God, that He knows better than we do, instead of accepting that, you prefer instead a God who is willing but powerless. Or a God who is waiting for our permission to act. Are we ready to see Jesus as He truly is? Or will we prove hard of heart and hold fast instead to what we want Him to be? May we grasp the picture that Matthew paints. May we be willing to encounter and call out to the Son of the living God as He is found in His Word. May we see Jesus as He is and bow before Him in worship and adoration. Because He is the King of kings and He is worthy. Father, give us eyes to see the truth of Your Son, the truth of Your Word. Make us faithful to believe and to respond. Don't let any false vision of You, any man-created vision of God to allow any room in our hearts and our minds. May we not only know the God of the Bible, but truly love the God of the Bible and all the peculiar providence that You have designed to bring about our salvation. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.